Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's our new time noon on the first Monday of each month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. I'm Gory Bose Taylor, and here's somebody sitting next to me who looks well and cheerful. <laughs> I'm Matabatab. How are you, Gory? <laughs> yes, all is well in the rain. This nice noonday hour, Andrew Marshbanks brings a bag full of the best in fiction and non fiction from Wordsworth Books. Beverly Ross Muller is much moved by Bill Hayes' gentle, observant memoir, Insomniac City, of his love affair with the great Oliver Sacks, and with New York City. Mike Fitzjames chills our spines with three gripping thrillers, while Andrew Brown, advocate and a police reservist, is shocked at the revelations of real-life crime in Mandy Weiner's Ministry of Crime. Vanessa Levenstein takes on two books, White Houses by Amy Bloom, the love affair between Eleanor Roosevelt and Arena Hickok, and the handsome 100 Books That Changed the World by Scott Christensen and Colin Slater. Philip Todras talks to Natalie Knight, art mover and shaker, whose biography is both a personal memoir and an overview of her contribution to the South African arts and cultural landscape. You found a tad, found it a tad tricky, buying good books for teenagers? Well, Leslie Beek leads the way, and Remembering Mum's Knee reads engagingly from a book for younger children. Melvin Minar leads via the visual in various art publications. Irma Stern, Are You Still Alive? Art and Justice. Public Art in South Africa, Bronze Warriors and Plastic Presidents. Footnotes for the Panther and Creative Explained. Sidney Moritz chooses The Choice by Edith Eager, both a memoir and a guide written by a woman who survived the Holocaust, mainly on her mother's advice. And finally, we chat to retired surgeon Michael Dupree about his thoroughly engaging Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time, which has just been published in paperback. There are two 250 Rand book vouchers to be won from Wordsworth Books. Do listen up for our easy-peasy competition question. Andrew Marshbanks, a bag full of very readable books on Wordsworth shelves. Hi Gary, hi listeners. Well I had a wander around our uh, bookshop in the garden centre and I came across about six books that we've got on sale now. Three very important South African books. I'm going to go to them first. The first one is The Anglo-Boer War, 1899-1902. A Historic Guide to Memorials and Sites in South Africa by Jackie Krobler. This is a very important book because in one place you've got absolutely every memorial, every site, everything that happened in the Boer War. And I know there are lots of people out there that like to go and explore the sites, explore the graveyards and find out what was happening on the ground. It's always fascinating. I think this book is a must-have for anyone who has 
historic interest in the Anglo-Boer War, uh, a very pivotal time in South African history. It is 455 rand. It's a large format paperback, some color, but mostly black and white all the way through, reasonable photographs, but really it's the information in it that's so important. Right, so that's the Anglo-Boer War, a historical guide to memorials and sites in South Africa, Jackie Krobler, and it's 455 rand. Important. The next important book is a dissection of one of the biggest corporate swindles, failures, whatever you have it, that's happened in South Africa. And one that has besmirched the name of South African business. And the investor's darling suddenly went boom. That's Steinhoff inside South Africa's biggest corporate crash by James Brent Stein. It is a very readable book. It's being published in English and Afrikaans at the same time. And as they say on the cover by uh, Rake van Nierkerk, a chilling insight into the rise and demise of one of South Africa's investment darlings. And if you look at all the trust funds, all the the Alan Grays, etc., they all invested heavily in Steinhoff. How did they get duped by the Stellenbosch so-called mafia, as he calls it in the book? What happened? How did it happen? And why did everyone close their eyes? It's a very good book and very timely. That's Steinhoff. Inside South Africa's Biggest Corporate Crash by Steyn, and it's 280 Rand. And then the third book, it's a book that's been hatched in secrecy. In fact, it only goes on sale next week. So it's called The Lost Boys of Bird Island, a shocking expose. And if anyone was around in the 70s, 80s in South Africa, there were all sorts of rumors about boys being left on an island and national MPs going out, flying out on helicopters and all that sort of stuff. It really was one of the scandals of the time. No one really had any information on it. It was just there in the ether, this island, so bird island. It was thought of at the time. The rumors were there, everything now. It's been dissected, and a book has been written. Marianne Tam does the foreword. It's a book by Mark Minnie and Chris Stain, and it's a shocking expose from within the heart of the NP government. This is a very important book. Yet another conspiracy in the heart of the national government. We know there were lots, and this is one of them, and it's quite fascinating. The late 80s allegations surface against prominent National Party cabinet ministers, one of them the second most powerful man in the land. They are, it is said, regularly abusing young boys on an island just off the coast of Port Elizabeth. So this all fits in. Remember those girls that were abducted and killed? This is all part of that whole ethos of the time. Right, that's The Lost Boys of Bird Island, a shocking expose, and published by Tafelberg. Now I've got uh, some fiction, just to take us away from all the doom and gloom and stuff. I'm just going to quickly go through it. There's a new Caitlin Moran. If you know Caitlin Moran, she did a How to Build a Girl book. She is extremely witty, very funny, uh, feminist writing at its best. This is How to Be Famous, a novel by Caitlin Moran, and I love her. She's just brilliant. She does a sitcom on TV, and it's also quite brilliant. 
How can one girl stop a powerful, famous man? Well, if you're Caitlin Moran, that's no problem. It's called How to Be Famous, and it is 290 Rand. Then there's a new book by the guy uh, Lars Kepler, another Swedish-Danish thriller. He wrote The Hypnotist, which was really very, very good thriller. And he's got a new one. It's called The Rabbit Hunter. Somehow these Swedish-Danish Scandi-Noir books are very frightening. They really are. And they've got it down to a fine art. The stories are riveting, and all of them are good. This is Lars Kepler, and it's called The Rabbit Hunter. It begins with a nursery rhyme. Nineteen minutes later, you die. And it's 305 rand. And there's a new book by Louis de Bernier. You all remember Captain Corelli's Mandolin? He's a very good author, Louis de Bernier. So much life left over. This is a good one for the book club. It's 290 rand uh, and a set in Salon. Very good, good reading. Well, there's a lot there for you to digest. Uh, Have a wonderful, happy reading month. Cheers. Bye. And here's your easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 250 book vouchers from Wordsworth Books. Which book chain do you hear on this program? Is it Wordsworth Books? Is it Lollipop? We're looking forward to your answers on 021-401-1013. Beverly Rose Muller, Bill Hayes and the great Oliver Sacks. Insomniac City is an unusual love story about both the city and also Oliver Sacks everybody's favorite neurologist who died in 2015. He of such riveting books as The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Awakenings, and my own favorite, Hallucinations. He was a man with a big heart who nevertheless led a mostly solitary life. He was born in England to medical parents, but he spent most of his life in America. As a gay man, he had lived celibate for more than three decades, before he met author and photographer Bill Hayes, some years younger than him, in New York. To Sack's surprise, they fell in love, and Hayes' devotion was the great gift in the last years of Sack's life. This memoir, Insomniac City, is a gentle, observant, and moving work, also a praise song to New York, where Hayes had fled to after his former lover had died on the west coast of AIDS. He began to photograph the great thrumming city in all its many moods, at night, on the streets, under bypasses, and in parks, and to document the multifaceted neighborhoods and the many migrants who came and stayed. He was one. This is a book that can be quite easily relished, even if you've never heard of Oliver Sacks. But for devotees of him as I am, it is essential, often touching reading. Hayes is careful not to rely too heavily on their relationship for this book, which includes many photographs by Hayes, while detailing the joy and pleasure in their relationship. Sachs had a huge imagination, but there were many simple things of which he had no knowledge. When, in 2009, Hayes gave Sachs his first kiss, Sachs is astonished and asked him if that is what kissing is, or is it something you've invented? Hayes laughs and replies, If I hold you closely enough, I can hear your brain. 
At first, Saks was shy about going public with their relationship. After they came out, they traveled and shared their lives with touching affection, though they did not live together. Saks needed his solitude to work in veteran scribbler. He was so divorced from popular culture that when Michael Jackson died, he had to ask Hayes, who was this man that people kept talking about? The most creative of thinkers, he was oddly childlike in some aspects of his life, and it was the more worldly Hayes who provided the balance. Throughout Sachs's final illness, Hayes cared for him, while continue, continuing to document the New York he had also come to love and to chronicle. Insomniac City is not conventionally written, though easy to read. Crafted in a journal-like style, some chapters are mini-essays, while others are simple, random notes and quotes, a couple of lines or a digression, a window into their daily lives, their routines, and the impact of randomness that they were both able to see and capture, though in differing ways. I like this memoir by Bill Hayes very much and thought it a worthwhile and fascinating tribute both to Oliver Sacks and to New York. And it's Mike Fitzjames with three thrillers to chill our souls. Mike Fitzjames, three spine-chilling thrillers, as ever. Good afternoon, Gorry. I have selected three first-class thrillers for today's programme. My first thriller is The Moscow Deception by Karen Robards. This is a follow-up to The Ultimation and features Bianca St. Ives. As before, this is a rip-roaring page-turner, almost impossible to put down. Bianca, a skilled con woman and thief, is in trouble. A revelation from her past has shocked her to her core and made her the target of international assassins. Now Bianca's father offers her a job which might remove the threats of assassination. But this involves the recovery of a collection of heavily guarded artefacts stolen by the Russians during World War II. If she succeeds, her reward would be the intel that could finally bring down the shadowy forces who are seeking to eliminate her for good. Faced with threats that embrace every move she makes, Bianca knows the stakes have never been higher. But living on borrowed time, you must gamble if you want to live to see tomorrow. If action is what you love, don't miss this read. My next choice is The Killing Habit by Mark Billingham. We all know the signs, cruelty, lack of empathy, the killing of animals, etc. Now pets in London suburban streets are being stalked by a shadow figure and slaughtered. D.I. Tom Thorne knows the profile of such offenders all too well. So when he's given the task of catching this killer of domestic cats... He also sees the chance to stop a probable series of homicides before they start. Others are less convinced. So once more, Thorne calls in D.I. Nicola Tanner to help him solve the case. The race is on to find this killer before he starts hunting people. However, this task will bring them face to face with a killer 
who will tear their lives apart. This was a tense and gripping read based on a true case. My final choice is Farfly by Henry Porter. Codename Farfly, a boy genius flees through the wild Balkan landscape with a horde of vital intelligence on his phone. Skilled in the arts of evasion and a practiced thief, the 13-year-old is pursued by an assassination squad who know that Farfly's knowledge could destroy the IS networks in Europe and reveal the appalling secrets of their operation. When MI6 becomes aware of what Farfly is carrying, former intelligence officer Paul Sampson, an expert in finding missing persons, is recruited to track down Farfly before a man nicknamed Machete catches up with the boy. Determined to find a safe haven in Europe for his stricken family, Farfly does everything to survive on the road. What follows is a desperate race against the clock in a devastatingly timely thriller following the refugee trail from the dark heart of the Middle East to Europe. This was unbelievably good and not to be missed. That's it for this month. My choices were The Moscow Deception by Karen Robards, The Killing Habit by Mark Billingham, Farfly by Henry Porter. Read well. Andrew Brown, Mandy Wiener's Ministry of Crime with a rather nice threatening cover. Interesting book. Um, not necessarily the most uplifting read you're ever going to have, but then it's not dealing with a particularly uplifting topic. I've been a police officer in South Africa for 19 years now, and in that time I've had as my police commissioners Jackie, Where's the Money, Celebi, Beke, Shoot to Kill, Nele, and of course, not to forget Ria, I'm so proud of Marikana, Piecha. So that's the sort of leadership that I've had as my police. And you would think that with that history, I'm beyond being disappointed or shocked at the behavior of senior police officials and politicians, but not so. There is no end to the depths to which the corrupt are prepared to plumb in, all the, in the pursuit of their own interests. So Mandy Wiener's book is really finely researched. It's well-crafted, and essentially it's a sturdy ladder that is leading you down into the pit, rung by rung, step by scary step. You descend into the mire that is our unique world of South African gangsterism. And I say unique, but maybe Russia's Putin might be similar, perhaps the Wild West of Mexico, I'm not sure. But she describes Radovan Krezia, who arrives in South Africa, and what he encounters is a naive country that is easy pickings for someone of his particular ruthless nature. And this country becomes his playground. What is shocking, though, are those friends who choose to play with him in that playground. And my friend uh, Jonathan Shapiro, the cartoonist Shapiro, he often exclaims how spoilt he feels being a cartoonist in this country where politicians behave so insanely immaturely. It's a bit like being a CNN news reporter in Trump's America, I think. Every day is a, <laughs> is a euphoric one. Um, but one gets that sort of similar feeling of annoyance that Mandy is having so much fun exposing one scandal after another after another. They just stack up. The question for me then really is, why read the book? It's not uplifting, 
it is well written, but do we need to trawl through the mud once more? And I think the answer is that we forget so quickly. There's so much in this book that wasn't reported or was reported poorly or I didn't understand at the time. I think we're bewildered by how one shady figure fits into another. And the book will help you understand that spider's web. It won't make you feel any better, I promise, but then knowledge seldom improves one's mood. There are dangers in this kind of expose. I think Mandy manages largely to avoid sensationalism. She does her best not to take sides in contested areas, and I think generally it's very balanced and, ob and objective. But if we can have one example, General Veery, in my personal world, he is a respected former Mkonto Wesizwe operative who I worked with. He is combating gang warfare in the Cape Flats. He's a good man. But there are those who will tell you that he has gang tattoos on his arm if he rolls up his sleeves. And there are those that tell you he's too close to senior gang members. So when you embroil a man like that in a book like this, you could be destroying the work of a very fine police officer, or you could be exposing a corrupt official who's snuggled up in the heart of darkness. And it's important to be sure. In this country, I'm not sure that you can ever be certain of anything as wonderful and crazy as this place is that we call home. So, read this book, but just have a really good bottle of whiskey close by. Vanessa Levenstein, The Love Affair Between Eleanor Roosevelt and Irina Hickok. And you also looked at 100 books that changed the world. Just over 200 pages in length, White Houses, a short but intense novel, tells the story of the love affair between Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt. In the 1930s, Lorena Hickok was the foremost female journalist in America and the first woman to have a byline in the New York Times. Amy Bloom read the 3,000 letters published between Lorena, known as Hick, and Eleanor and based the emotional contents of a book on these. The author was also influenced by Blanche Wiesen Cook's monumental Eleanor Roosevelt biography. The book is written from the perspective of Hick. The two women meet and unexpectedly fall in love and spend 12 years together living in the White House in interleaving bedrooms. Whether the intimate friendship between Eleanor and Hick was consummated, I don't think we can conclusively say, although the author would disagree with me. However, without a doubt, their relationship was based on loyalty and love. Lorena and Eleanor's early lives were very different, as was their exposure to both male and female sexuality. Born into poverty, Hick's mother dies, and she is left with her cruel, abusive father. She leaves home, goes to work in service, and then joins a circus. Eleanor, niece of Theodore Roosevelt, went to an English boarding school and then travelled to Europe. Eleanor's exposure to homosexuality would have been through the intellectual circles she kept. Hick first met Eleanor as part of a work assignment. She offers to follow Eleanor on the campaign, and they strike a friendship that develops into love. In 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor move into the White House, along with family and friends and Hick. Hick soon became part of the narrative, as the editor of the Associated Press office says upon her resignation. You're part of the story, kid. The novel weaves back and forth, between just after Roosevelt's death in 1945 and the early 1930s. Bloom captures the period with references to Lindbergh Baby's kidnapping, Wallace Simpson and Amelia Earhart. Eleanor's many challenges included an unfaithful husband, 
who was in fact a serial adulterer and rather indulged children, and yet her compunction to serve others, to do the right thing, was unflinching. And when Franklin's mistress and secretary has a stroke, it's the two women who look after her, not Franklin. What is striking about this beautiful book is more than just the love affair. It's the devotion and dedication of both women to Eleanor's role as First Lady. Eleanor advocated the role of women in the workplace, the civil rights of African Americans, and big shout out, the rights of World War II refugees. Somebody should send a copy of White Houses to Melania Trump with a message that contains just two words. She cared. My second book is A Hundred Books That Changed the World by Scott Christensen and Colin Slater. Are you looking for the ideal gift for anyone? A ten-year-old child? A twenty-first birthday present? How about a fiftieth wedding anniversary present? I've got it for you. A Hundred Books That Changed the World. The collection includes works of both fiction and non-fiction. Now, as an experiment, I left the book on my bedside table and have noticed when my 11-year-old is bored, he picks it up and says, So, who is Samuel Johnson? Now, in an age where you're competing with flying cats on YouTube, a book that continues to draw in a young reader gets first prize. This hardcover is a chronological collection of truly exceptional books and each entry has a corresponding full-colour page and I'm not quite sure how they managed to publish this exquisite book with colour illustrations and it's in hard copy for just 295 rand. Apart from being a book lover's eye candy, the content is equally impressive. The book starts with the I Ching, includes the Torah, the Koran, the Canterbury Tales, Samuel Pepys' diary, the origin of the species, Grey's Anatomy, Lady Chatley's lover, the cat in the hat, and of course Harry Potter. Each entry has a short italicized reference at the top of the page, and then an in-depth review below. Now this is so well thought out, as you can dip in and out of the review much the same way as you would online. The introduction to the book is interesting as the authors discuss what went into the selection process. Of our 100 books, there are 50 that everyone would agree should be included. The other 50, almost everyone would disagree. There is no definitive answer, but it does make one as a reader make a mental list of the books we still have to read. Sadly, Scott Christensen died suddenly before the book was published. However, he leaves behind a rich legacy of which this work is part. 100 books that changed the world will remain by my bedside table and maybe one day I'll finally add those books like A Brief History of Time from the I Must Read to I Have Read list. Here's a pre-record chat with Philip Todris and art mover and shaker Natalie Knight. I'm going to be talking to Natalie Knight about The Big Picture, an autobiography published by Butchie Ricker. Natalie, Let's start at the beginning. What is an autobiography? Well, an autobiography is something that's not quite an autobiography. It was ba- the story of the big picture was based on an original biography written by Lorna Jacobson called The Unstoppable. That is what she des- how she described me. And I then took that basic biography and turned it into an autobiography, but featuring mostly the art, because... My life has really been revolved uh, greatly around the artworks. And not only around the artworks, but about art in general, from the visual to the forming and all of that. So you've had various aspects of art in your life. What are, the crea- what are the links that you think determine those various aspects that you've been through, those periods? It was, it was interesting because the very first uh, interest I took in art was 
and I started doing research on the Enderbeli. It was a, a wonderful project and a project which subsequently had far-reaching international uh, ramifications. The art pieces that we collected are now in major collections all over the world. And the, it was interesting because Enderbeli led me into a whole new world. I started writing for various newspapers and from there I started writing art reviews and theatre reviews and went to New York. It's actually, looking back on it, there's a very strong line that directed my path along the way from the original research on the end of Bailey into the next step really was the art posters that I found in New York after I had uh, been studying history of art at WITS. I was fascinated by all these contemporary artists David Hockney, Andy Warhol, and I was very fortunate in later years to actually meet both those artists and interview them. So this all forms part of both my life and the thread that runs through the book. Would you say the creative spark is maybe one of the links between all these periods? It really was because I studied to be a lawyer because of my mother's desire that I should have a profession. And ironically, when I later went and studied a history of art, that became my profession. And it was definitely some stirring of this visual that started my whole career. And from there, I started writing plays. And it sounded like a diffuse life when I started off thinking about what I had done and, and writing this autobiography. But in fact, the big picture began to emerge and the reason for the title also is because we never really do see the big picture. And it's just something when you look back with hindsight that you begin to see more clearly. Well, one of the things I think we must talk about, seeing it is the 100th year and a very special month, can you tell us about that one very special moment in your life and in your career when you met a very special person? Well, as a result of all these artworks I created after, eventually needed to create a big public space called the Natalie Knight Gallery in Hyde Park. And it was very important that I had that exposure because people came into Hyde Park that you would never imagine. I was walking around and who do I bump into but Nelson Mandela. And there I urged him to come into the gallery to see a beautiful work that Tommy Motswai had created of him and Dr. De Klerk. This was the historic handshake and by luck my photographer was in the gallery at that moment and she said to Mr. Mandela who was very friendly, very warm, very charming, wouldn't you shake hands with Natalie in front of this work with you shaking hands with Dr. De Klerk and of course Diva was smiling and friendly and so this wonderful photograph emerged, late photograph which appeared in the Sunday Times was also then sourced by the Spiegel, German newspaper, because they were looking for a work of Mandela and de Klerk because there were rumours, which proved to be correct, that they were going to be receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. So here, by purely being in the right place at the right time, all these wonderful things emerged. But the most important thing was meeting Mandela not only did he shake my hand, but my entire framing staff, whoever was in the gallery, came rushing up, and he was shaking hands with everybody. And that warmth and wonderful personality, something that you'll never forget.
I did meet him subsequently when I uh, managed to organize a show on his 90th birthday at the Constitutional Court. He went into his office and he met the artist. But that first moment, that feeling of Mandela's hand in my hand was something that, that I'll never forget. And of course, it's featured in the book. And I think there are lots of other moments in your life that, as a reader, we can encounter and enjoy. We've been speaking to Natalie Knight. The book is called The Big Picture. It's an autobiography, and I like that subtitle, and it's available, and do enjoy it. Leslie Beek, hurrah for books for teenagers. Buying a book for a teenager is about as simple as playing darts in the dark, but possibly with less lethal results. Writing a book for teenagers might be worse, but you will have to read a few first, and here are two to start with. Edith Bulbring with Snitch 1 and Snitch 2 has managed to not only catch the attention of some youth I tried them on, it's proving quite hard to get them back, she's also made me laugh out loud quite often while I was reading them myself. A good book for young people has to be, as Jay Hill told me 30 years ago, about something, and both of these books are. The story, set around a rather posh South African boys' school, conveniently adjacent to a rather posh girls' school, addresses a dilemma that can happen so unexpectedly and sometimes disastrously to any of us, whether to tell or not. If what you know is dangerous to those you know it about, do you mention it to anyone? To parents, the authorities, the police? Do you keep your mouth shut and watch your friend self-destruct? How do you cope? These clever stories wind their often amusing way between the goalposts of morality in books that are heartwarming as well as thoughtful. If you've been sheltered from real teenage life out there, they should perhaps carry a health warning, but believe them. A book for younger readers that I fell in love with when I first picked it up is It's a Book by much-awarded author and illustrator Lane Smith. It features a jackass with a tablet and a monkey with a book. What is it? asks jackass. What do you have there? It's a book. How do you scroll down? I don't. I turn the page. Do you blog with it? No. It's a book. Can it text? Nope. Tweet? Nope. Wi-Fi? Nope. When Jackass actually looks at the book, he's terrified. Arr, not eat long, John Silver. We're in agreement, then. He unsheathed his broad cutlass, laughing a maniacal laugh. Ha, ha, ha! Jim was petrified. So is Jackass. Who knows? He could cut the words if only they were on his tablet. When the inevitable happens and Jackass starts to actually read the book, Monkey heads off to the library for another one. Hurrah for books! Snitch One by Edith Bulbring was published in 2017 by Tafelberg and collected the San Lam Gold Award, the Sir Percy Fitzpatrick Award and the MER Prize for Youth Literature. Snitch 2 was published by the same publishers in 2018. It's a Book was published in America by various publishers from 2010 onwards and by Two Hoots, an imprint of Pan Macmillan, in 2018. Melvin Minar, various art books, art publications. Pessimists about the diminishing ambiance of culture and knowledge in this, our age of hypermedia, instant communication, fake news and Google, 
can take joy in the perseverance of publishers to print, often in smart and lush format, clever, insightful and good books about art. This month I'm mentioning a few, not so much as to review as to recommend, as these great books enrich and tickle so much more than our cultural fancies. First up is a new book about the eternal darling of the local art auction world, Irma Stern. Are You Still Alive? Stern's life and art seen through her letters to Richard and Frieda Feldman, 1934-1996, was compiled by the well-known art historian Sandra Klopper from the correspondence between Stern and her good friends, the Feldmans. Frieda Feldman was painted quite a few times by Stern, and the wonderful heritage of the Stern Museum in Rosebank owes a great deal to her efforts. Klopper's research is thorough and enlightening. One hears the voice of the painter in the words, talking about her art, travels and observations. It's delightfully personal and intimate, a reflection on the ego and the eccentric vision of Irma Stern's world. The Constitutional Court in Johannesburg bathes in its own cultural glory architecturally, but also because of its resemblance as an art museum. The beautiful 2006 book, Light on a Hill, records the building's birth. From the start, the constitutional judges decided to be a place of art in vibrant spaces. The book about that art has just been reprinted, and it too is a beautiful and fascinating document. We all know that the former judge, Albie Sachs, was the mover and shaker of the project. Together with his colleague, Judge Yvonne Makoro, the call went out to artists, and today the collection speaks brilliantly in the haloed halls. What makes the book Art and Justice, the art of the Constitutional Court of South Africa particularly smart, is that lovely photographs show the artworks in situ. Sachs tells the story, and it's a marvelous take of cultural goodwill. A completely different publication about art in public spaces is a superb and serious academic study called Public Art in South Africa, Bronze Warriors and Plastic Presidents, edited by cultural academics Kim Miller and Brenda Sharman. Local arguments about monuments are still raging and are highly charged. Think of the roads must fall. In South Africa, the context and debate about colonial heritage and post-colonial art is most dynamic, and this is a very valuable study. Numerous international collaborators were charged with contributions by the two editors, and many existing monuments and statues are discussed, and new art projects and contemporary commemorative efforts considered. The how, why, and where makes for intriguing discussions in this valuable book. Questions about how public visual and three-dimensional expression portrays history and memory are negotiated, how it evolves contemporary conversations about race, gender, and identity. The new painted bronze Madiba on the City Hall balcony is just one boring, easy way out of an artistically interesting challenge. Not all artists are nifty wordsmiths or crafty through exponents of their own work. But William Kentridge is pretty much a person who can hold forth in clear, bright, and enlightening sentences. The attractive new book, Footnotes for the Panther, Conversations between William Kentridge and Dennis Herson, is a spellbounding text for those of us curious about his creative genius, but also about how art matters in our modern world. Reading like a punchy interview, the book is a transcription of ten conversations Kentridge had with his friend, the literary scholar and author Dennis Herson. 
It started in June 2010 when the two had a public conversation when Kentridge's retrospective exhibition opened at the Jean de Pomp Museum in Paris. They continued the discussions later, taking in subjects like complications of art making, their backgrounds as young Johannesburgers, and the uniqueness of South Africa's inspiration. It's a great read. Less easy to read, but equally rewarding for contemporary art observers is the book called Duty-Free Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War by the German artist and filmmaker Hitu Statel. Known for a direct, unsettling art-making and fearless philosophy, Sale tackles some of the most pressing issues about art and its place in society. The term duty-free art is a lingering question. Can artists still invent and create without influences, expectations, obligations or duty to gallerists, curators, capitalists and collectors? How does art work in an era of civil war? Increasingly social disparity and suffocating digital technology. Tricky questions. Okay, it's Cindy Morris. You chose the choice, a woman who survived the Holocaust. There was and still is a lot of buzz about the choice. World acclaimed psychologist Edith Eager's account of her fascinating life story, woven together with how she draws on her experience to help patients to escape the prisons of their own minds. Dr. Eager is a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor who now lives in America, but still speaks Hungarian-accented English. In The Choice, she describes her incarceration at age 16 in Auschwitz, Poland, and later Matthausen, Austria, and emphasizes how a single piece of advice from her mother, as they sat squashed together with her father and sister Magda in a dark cattle truck, helped her to survive not only the horror of the camps, but throughout her life after, equipping her to impart this wisdom to other trauma sufferers. Titsuka, her mother said to her, using the affectionate term reserved just for her, listen, we don't know where we're going, we don't know what's going to happen, just remember, no one can take away from you what you've put in your mind. I hadn't been sure myself that I had the courage to immerse myself in another painful, albeit inspirational, Holocaust survival story. I'd recently revisited the writing of Viktor Frankl and Elie Wiesel after all, but when I picked up the choice and flicked through it, I realized that I would need to add Edith Eager to my reading list. She describes her life pre-war. She was a talented gymnast and dancer. During the Holocaust, where she experienced the hell of her parents' murder as well as her own unimaginable suffering, and then returning broken to her hometown to discover that her childhood sweetheart had also perished in the camps. How does one continue after this? With immense personal struggle, it turns out. However, some years later, when Edith had settled in America, a fortuitous encounter with Viktor Frankl himself provided the emotional and psychological nourishment she sought. While at university, she'd written an essay called Viktor Frankl and Me, after being handed a copy of Frankl's book Man's Search for Meaning by a student much younger than herself. After confronting the very thing she sought to hide, she realized that perhaps speaking about the past could heal it instead of calcify it. Perhaps silence and denial weren't the only choices to make in the wake of catastrophic loss. Someone then anonymously mailed a copy of that essay to Frankel. Frankel was 23 years her senior, 
already a successful physician and psychiatrist when he was interred at Auschwitz. He had read her essay and been moved enough to contact her, to relate to her as a fellow survivor. Eger says, I had written about imagining myself on stage at the Budapest Opera House the night I was forced to dance for Mengele. Frankel wrote that he had done something similar at Auschwitz. In his worst moments, he had imagined himself a free man giving lectures in Vienna on the psychology of imprisonment. He had also found a sanctuary in an inner world that both shielded him from his present fear and pain and inspired his hope and sense of purpose that gave him the means and a reason to survive. So began a correspondence and a friendship that would last for many years. It was the spark of what would become her calling, together with the realization that she had the power and opportunity, as well as the responsibility, to choose her own meaning, her own life. If her mother's words were what helped her to claw her way out of a trauma and psychological prison, then in turn Dr. Eager has gifted us a book full of wisdom that will equip the reader to access the choices we have in our own lives and the courage to write a script that will emphasize the strength of the human spirit above all. That's it then, and it was very good to be with you, as always, especially at our new noontime. Today's winners, uh, Ben Rabinowitz and Colleen Bowers. We'll ring you straight after this. Do stay next to your telephones. It's Matin Up next with Brendan Van Rijn and Amanda Boerter's book kisser at this same time on Wednesday, August the 22nd. Do go to Book Choice Podcasts on www.fmr.co.za. Thank you to the team, to Rick Everett for so carefully compiling the music. Thank you to Mataba Taba Radebi for so cleverly keeping the show on the road. And from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's goodbye and Good reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth, we sell books the old fashioned way. We read them. FMR.